Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So, I'm recording this on December 13th, 2019. Not quite sure when you'll be listening to it, but as of recording, I am um, nursing off a pretty severe political hangover, shall we say. So those of you who follow politics internationally, and certainly those of you who live in the UK, will be aware that we just had an election yesterday. I stayed up and watched the thing, I'm not quite sure why I put myself through that, but I did. And a bunch of people, both friends and fans of the show, have been messaging me to ask what I think, and I thought I'd maybe say a few quick words about that before we get started with today's guest. Because I think I can do this fairly quickly. The truth of the matter is I don't have any profound insight or reassuring words. I think the bad guys won. More specifically, I think the UK has just empowered a irresponsible, amoral charlatan, and that is going to have predictably bad consequences for the lives of ordinary people who will have to live under that government, whether they voted for him or not. So that's my view. I certainly hope to be wrong about that. One of the things everyone does say about Boris Johnson is he seems to be devoid of any principles whatsoever, other than an attachment to gaining and maintaining power for himself. So perhaps if the incentives align correctly, he might act better than I'm anticipating. That's possible, but I don't hold out any great optimism for it. And the truth is, where everyone's trying to find a silver lining and so on, I don't view it as my role to provide that. This is bad. As I say often on this podcast, politics doesn't guarantee you happy endings. And indeed, the desire for them is something that we have to outgrow. So sorry to start on a downer. That's what I think of that. I'll do one quick mea culpa, which is a Latin way of saying my bad literally means that, my culpability. Mea culpa, that's what that one means. But I'll do a quick mea culpa or my bad, and that'll bring me into the topic that I'm going to be discussing in this week's episode. The my bad is, I was live blogging this on Twitter, I just had a Twitter thread where I was posting various results as they came in, and interacting with people, and having discussions, and so on. And I tweeted out, what do we think this Do we think this will have an impact on US politics? After all, Johnson is compared a lot to Trump, and Corbyn is compared a lot to Bernie Sanders. Is this going to filter over into the US? After all, in the last UK election, a lot of people took Corbyn's stronger than expected performance as an indicator that Sanders would have won even though Corbyn actually lost that election, but that was still how it was interpreted. I was curious now that Corbyn has lost, I mean, depending on the statistics you want to measure this by, but possibly as badly as a Labour leader has lost in almost 100 years. Given that, is that going to filter through into US political discourse? And as soon as I posted it, or maybe a little bit after, I realised it was way too soon 
for that question because left-wing social media has kind of turned into a bear pit of throwing around blame and accusations and see I told you so's about this and um, a lot of people seem to take that comment in that way and so I apologize for that it wasn't my intention to get into pointing fingers and I think it's way too soon to start assigning blame people people are in mourning you know, people are in a lot of pain, and we're not going to be able to have a rational conversation right now about what were the factors that went into this defeat. The time for that will come, and indeed when I scanned social media generally, what I observed is that this question, which is being asked by other people of what will this mean for American politics, has kind of just become a Rorschach test. You know that um, inkblot thing psychologists do where you see like a, a smudge on the page and what you see in the smudge tells you more about you than it does the smudge? So centrists had jumped on and said, see, this just proves that the crazy lefties will, will, will never get elected in America, which was, of course, what they wanted to believe anyway. And then Sanders supporters had angrily responded, well, this just proves the centrists want people to die because they don't have health care or something. Um, and that, that seemed like, uh, to put it mildly, an unproductive discussion. So... Um, I didn't really intend to contribute to that. Like, where I was coming from with that question was just a pure um, political nerd point in that I feel like for this past year or two, I've been following two news stories very, very closely, the American presidential race and the whole uh, Brexit story in the UK. And it's almost like I've been watching two TV shows and wondering... Is there ever going to be like a crossover event here? Um, so I was sort of asking for more that sort of political nerd point of view. Um, for, for what it's worth, I think both of those narratives are wrong, both the centrist and the Bernie supporter. And that if there is a lesson for the US, it wouldn't be about political ideology as such. Uh, you know, ideology means different things in different countries. They're very different electorates, very different electoral systems. I think the moral I would draw is it's about unity and disunity. I said before the election that whichever side of the argument, Brexit or Remain, could unify more effectively would win. And I think that's pretty much what happened. The Brexit side got fewer votes, but those votes were united in a single party. And then even on the ideology side, um, Corbyn has had a hell of a time bringing the sort of centrists in the parliamentary party on board and getting them to support him. And at the same time, his supporters have credibly threatened the centrists that if you remove our guy, we'll withhold our votes from you. And, and so when the left is that divided, both on the defining generational political issue between parties, but also ideologically within the main party, I think in those circumstances, defeat becomes inevitable. I don't say, I, I, I tried to retain hope for Labour, but it, it was a long, 
difficult path out. And that's not to say that there aren't legitimate questions of who is at fault here. You know, how much blame should go to Corbyn, should go to the press, should go to whoever, right? Um, I just think the questions of blame will need a bit of time for us to process this. So, for now, my final word on this is I voted Labour, I am a lifelong Labour voter, but I have been a bit of a Corbyn sceptic, but, you know, I think all things considered, that was still the clearly preferable choice. I said on social media and so on, that was how I was voting, and if I still lived in the UK, I would definitely have done some canvassing, or volunteering, or whatever, for the party, and people who did do that, and, um did take on board that grassroots activism and go and try and knock out votes in the rain, have my utmost admiration and respect. And my heart goes out to them, really. I've I've been corresponding with a few, you know, younger people who this is really their first election. And they're sort of saying, how do we get through this? And, you know, I'm with you there. Um, I don't have any brilliant answers. I don't have any silver lining other than to express my admiration and appreciation for the effort and energy that you've put in. So, that is what I have to say there. Now, I said that would lead into today's episode. How so? Well, not directly, but it did get me thinking. Does what I've just said commit me to a view that we should never be criticising or posing challenges to progressive leaders with whom we agree on most or all of the issues? And I think the answer to that has to be no, that when people are in or when people are seeking positions of real political power, it is quite appropriate to put questions to them, hard questions, even when they're on our side, quote-unquote, as it were. I think my sentiments around the assigning of blame are a recognition that there are better and worse times to pose those questions. I think the morning after you've just lost a big, nasty, bloody battle is probably about the worst time to be asking those hard questions. And when you're in the middle of a battle, I think it can be not strategically wise. I think, you know, all the second-guessing about are the Democrats pursuing the right strategy for impeachment, that's fine as questions, but really, let's not distract that from making the case that Trump should be impeached. I think the best time is when you're selecting your leadership and when you're formulating your plans, when you're deciding who will lead you into battle. I said at the end of this interview, I do believe and not as a matter of conviction, but a matter of data, that there are, right now, the votes in America to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. Those votes are there, and we've seen that from the midterms, from special elections, from polling. The question is, who should lead? You know, we have the army, the question is, who will lead it? And there's various people vying to do that, And it's an incredibly important, consequential, and responsible position, both for the individual and the sort of movement and the fraction of the party that they will represent. And I think it's quite appropriate that we ask hard questions. 
of them. Now, there's many different ways you can divide up the democratic field, but one narrative, one framing device that we keep coming back to is that of the centrist establishment versus the insurgent progressives, probably best represented by Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, respectively. So I say that because there is a strain on the progressive side that regards challenges to it as essentially illegitimate. If you have questions to ask of the Sanders movement, that just proves that you're a sellout, that you're badly intentioned, that you actually want people to die for not having health care. Now, I just disagree with that defensiveness. I think those seeking power should be made to answer questions. And I think, or movements seeking power should have to answer hard questions, even if they don't like the questions, even if they don't think the questions are fair. And I also think there can be a difference of strategy and principle. These things can diverge. The most, you know, ideologically pure thing in the world doesn't necessarily equate to the best strategy. So I say that as preamble because I'm very, very glad to have found a conversation partner for this episode who is a strong progressive and particularly is a strong, strong, strong Bernie supporter, but who doesn't have that defensiveness at all, who I had a very amicable conversation with in which I aired exactly what my concerns were, and he answered them. And I would encourage anyone of any political persuasion to, you know, give the conversation a listen with an open mind, to listen to the points we're making before you decide who you agree with. One final point in what's turning into quite a long introduction is these, I'm not posing concerns for the sake of it in this conversation. These are my concerns, and I more or less stand by everything I've said in this interview. My concerns about the centrist establishment candidates, let's just take Joe Biden for an example, are greater than my concerns about progressives. And I think for way of balance, it quite, might be quite nice to get an elected official or someone who's seeking office who's a Biden endorser on for a bit of balance. And I can put sort of the opposing set of questions to them. So, with that as preamble, my guest today is Chris Armitage. He is a Democrat seeking election in Washington's 5th Congressional District. He's running against a longtime Republican uh, incumbent, Martha McSally, who's actually in the House leadership. He is a veteran, a climate activist. And as you'll hear when I ask him to go over his bio, he's done any number of, like, interesting and different and divergent things. So we start with Chris and his district. And as you'll hear, you know, I nerd out a little bit on this because I am someone who's worked on political campaigns, so I can really get into the details. We talk about him, and then we get on to talking about... um some of the views and positions that he's running on, and in particular we talk about the criminal justice system, which has been an issue that's concerned me a lot, 
and I thought was interesting to ask about because he has a background um, both in the military and in law enforcement. And so I wanted to put those questions to him, and I was really interested by some of the stuff he had to say, both as a progressive but also as someone who's been inside those systems. We then get on to um, the progressive movement more generally. Is a sort of strongly progressive you know, pro-working class political ideology the right way to win elections? And then we get on to the Sanders candidacy and some of the unease I have around that, particularly around the Bernie or Bust movement, which may unfortunately be resurgent in this cycle. And I know that that is still a sensitive topic, but the time has gone past, you know, it's been a few years since 2016, and I think we have to look honestly at it and reckon honestly with it when we're assessing our candidate preferences in 2020. And my concern in this area, I think a lot of Bernie supporters really feel like people are out to get them and their candidate. My concern, and I cannot say this strongly enough, is about winning. It's about beating Trump. It's about not fracturing and ha- what happened in the UK happening. I think, a se- I think a first Trump term was a disaster for human rights and governance, and I think a second Trump term will be a disaster for human rights and human governance, for human rights and governance. And that is where that concern is coming from. So I, did, I wanted to say that as well. So I've preambled far too long for this one. I did want to touch on the UK election, and I did want to touch on um, my general philosophy when um, interviewing people holding or seeking political power. With all of that said, let's get straight to it. This was a fun conversation, and one quick note on the conversation is we recorded this on Wednesday. So this was recorded a day before the UK election, which I've just talked a bit about, and it's airing a day after, which is a little bit weird timing, but we don't really reference the UK election at all in this one. We stay focused on American politics, which I think is (laughs) correct because he's seeking office in America, right? So anyway, let's get started. If you want to support Chris's campaign, I'm going to include in the show notes and on the web page a link to his website and a link to donate to his campaign. So if you want to get involved and support him, I encourage you to check that out. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you Chris Armitage. today by Chris Armitage, candidate for Washington's 5th Congressional District. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. Really glad to be here. I appreciate it, uh, Toby. You know, um, any any chance to speak to folks and help get, uh, you know, some quality substantive discussion out is, is really helpful. Cool. Um, I have lots of... Um, 
political nerd questions for you, but before we get into those, let's start with you. What is your bio for running for Congress? Because you have something perhaps of an unexpected biography for for a strong progressive, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, off the bat, you know, I, I, I believe I'm very well qualified and much more well qualified than a lot of the, the people in Congress right now and uh, our current representative especially. Uh, but it is an unusual background, especially for a progressive. I uh, was in the Air Force for two enlistments. I was stationed at the Air Force Base in our district, uh, Fairchild Air Force Base. While I was active duty, I deployed to the Middle East mm-hmm. twice where I did uh, base defense operations control work and security. Uh, I also did law enforcement and 911 operator work when I was stateside. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, that the opportunity to pursue a degree in Homeland, a master's in Homeland Security and undergrad in criminal justice was really valuable. And to do it without debt, especially, was great. And that's really a, a big thing that I took from the military. Now, since leaving the military uh, for the last two years, I've done a few different things. I've been a professional stand up comedian uh, throughout the whole period, and I've been doing stand up comedy professionally for years. Um, and also uh, owned a business, a commercial cleaning company, and then a uh, a business that got comedy uh, sponsors for comedy shows, corporate sponsors for comedy shows, uh, almost exclusively in the cannabis industry. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's pretty diverse. Um, most also a climate activist. I, I helped organize our last two climate strikes out here and, and was a uh, speaker at both of them. Um, and, you know, I really left all of uh, the military with the feeling that, you know, if I I had great health care. It was single payer and, and universal for people in the military. Our doctors were paid staff doctors in, you know, military hospitals and mm. clinics. And there wasn't any internal billing process because everyone was just on the same health care and it wasn't about profit. Mm. And the idea that my parents, my brothers, my community wouldn't deserve that same quality treatment just because they don't you know, aren't able to or don't want to serve in the military to me seems um, ridiculous. You know, everybody should have those opportunities to get education without massive debt and uh, quality health care without uh, a profit incentive for businesses and a living wage. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get back to healthcare. I wanted to pick up on the first part of that, which was military stroke law enforcement, because A lot of the time when people with that background get into politics, whatever their other views are, they tend to be sort of sympathetic to the police, the military side of those arguments. Um, I'm not, just to, to put that one out there. I can't find, like literally, even if I'm being sympathetic, a coherent moral justification for the American prison system. I really can't. So I wanted to put that back to you. How, what are your views on law enforcement and the criminal justice system, and how has that been impacted by being within it, albeit in the military? Well, I wouldn't call, you know, I wouldn't say it's the same thing to be supportive or or you know non-apologetic about stop and frisk as to be uh, you know sympathetic to military and law enforcement. I hmm. I get it. I understand. You know, I I joined the military and I was you know definitely grew up um, you know more progressive, uh, but um, you know I I just wanted to be able to 
finally have good health care and and uh you know the the ability to build some economic mobility that you don't really get outside of military the military uh, as a working class person um but you know uh, when it comes to my policies I, I they they come as a result of my experience i i met uh you know i met someone who uh you know, I was living on the streets when I was volunteering. I was volunteering recently at a warming shelter, and he told me about how when he was 12 years old, his father gave him meth. And, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of horror stories from, from while I was doing the law enforcement and, and since when working with uh, underserved and marginalized communities. And, um, you know, the, the people deserve help. That's why I support decriminalization of all drugs is because uh, people shouldn't be put in a cage for, um, you know, for having an addiction. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's why I'm not in law enforcement now. In fact, I uh, was just uh, at a job interview a few months ago to be an animal protection officer uh, before my pre when I was, I was job shopping before my previous job doing background investigations for nuclear power facilities. And they asked me why I, with my, with my background, I didn't want to do standard law enforcement. And I said, there's just no world where I want to put people in a cage for having an addiction, for having a health issue. Um, you know, 20% of people living on the streets now have schizophrenia. Imagine if 20% of people with diabetes uh, lived on the streets. It, it, people, there'd be much more outrage. Uh, people deserve to be cared for. You know, Barnum and Bailey learned 100 years ago that when you put living things in a cage with a cement floor and bars, it's torture for them and it makes them more violent and, and miserable. And we're doing that to humans today in the zoo, the animals get treated better than humans. And even, you know, when you go to a deeper level, we, I had a lot of friends who worked at, um, at detainment facilities in deployed locations where we kept terrorists and they were treated better than migrant children here in America today, mm. because the UN says that we need to give soap and toiletries and basic necessities to everyone who we detain or imprison or whatever the heck term you want to use now. And that's not happening here. Yeah, absolutely. Your um your your attitude on this is very similar to my wife's, weirdly, is she wanted to be um in the police back in the day, um, and she was in Police Explorers and all of that, but then, and she, I think she would have been quite good at it as well, but um, eventually just made the decision that she did not want to be locking probably usually poor people of colour up for, like you say, having an addiction, just an aside. Um, and then certainly, just to clarify what I was saying, when I talk about being for or against, I'm of course not saying every individual within those institutions. Obviously, many people, yourself included, go into them with the best of intentions. When I sort of talk about siding with, I'm talking about this sort of reflexive defense that tends to happen whenever someone in the army or the police behaves badly. So we've just had this, um, I don't know the details of it, but a case where um, Trump has intervened to help a soldier accused of war crimes, and then of course you get all of the various instances where police, are, you know, kill someone or something like that. And without passing judgment on any individual case, I do find it disturbing how there's a certain category of people who, before they even know the details, 
know that they're know that they're going to come up with a defense of the police officer or the person in the military and that's what i was talking about with siding i do find that quite disturbing that say just for the case of example the police shoot someone who's unarmed and people are already asking well what was that person doing to deserve it that seems a disturbing and frankly quasi-fascistic sentiment that's what i meant there yeah well and let me bring in more of the insider's view on that now for one thing we know for a fact especially here in my district that um racist white nationalist organizations funnel their membership into law enforcement Mm. that is absolutely true we were taught that in um even in intelligence briefings Mm. so that happens but I'll also say that there's a bigger part of it. I don't think every cop who shoots someone, um, even when it's unjust, is uh, is a racist. Not even close. No, uh, absolutely not. One, and of course, I know you're not saying that. And one, we need to um, change the laws because right now the police, instead of investigating the property crime going around and the people who actually are asking for help, they're busy trying to bust people who have an addiction. Hmm. Uh, That's where the majority of their budget comes from, and that's how they justify their militarization, because they're in a war with Um, with, you know, organized crime that that makes a lot of money off the criminalization of drugs. Um, So if we decriminalize drugs, we'll be able to demilitarize the police considerably. Uh, It's essentially like the as someone as someone who did soldiering and policing, I can tell you the crossover is incredible. It's very similar because due to the war on drugs, the police have essentially become an occupying force in our own territory. And just like when we were in the Middle East, that anyone out there that that um you know that anyone could have you know the AK hidden underneath uh, their robes, and and that's the attitude that law enforcement here has taken because of the war on drugs. Now another side of it though that I don't hear discussed ever. Hmm. is the training that police go through. Um, And like I said, it starts with decriminalizing drugs. But um, we were constantly given training where they would start it out by showing us videos of cops getting shot. I've heard about this. Yeah, sorry, go on. It's tragic and it's heartbreaking and it it hurts. Um, You know, it's hard to watch. And you say to yourself, I don't want that to be me. You know, I worked with people who would say, good people, especially if they'd been doing it for 40 years, and they'd say, uh, I'm going home to my family tonight. You know, the longer folks seem to be doing it, the more they seem to have that attitude of nobody stopping me from going home to my family tonight, so I'll take out that gun, you know, at the drop of a hat. Hmm. And, um, you know, you think about the trainers, the people who were teaching us. That's what they were thinking, too. They were like, I, I want these these, you know, men and women serving to be able to go home to their families tonight. And, you know, that really just wraps around why we need to end the war on drugs and demilitarize the police. Because it, it, as, as long as we have a war on drugs, we have a war being waged in our own streets. You know, the NYPD has one of the if they if the NYPD was a military for military, they would have one of the largest militaries on Earth. They have a tank. They have an Abrams. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, uh, it, the police, it, the thing is, when I talk about that training, it's downstream. It's so far downstream. You get rid of that training. You know, I we got the sensitivity training. We got all these different things. And it was laughed at. It was scoffed mm-hmm. at. 
it, it, it wasn't, you know, people weren't paying attention. And you're not going to be able to make them pay attention. You need to change the laws that lead to an unjust society. As, as Representative Ocasio-Cortez said recently, we need to shift the dialogue from racists to racism. We need to confront the laws in this country. We have 2.2 million people incarcerated. That's more than Stalin had in the gulags, and that's proportional to our population. Mm. And half of them are nonviolent drug offenders whose records should be expunged immediately. And uh, so we need to go far upstream and get rid of these laws that are the root of systemic and socioeconomic injustices. Otherwise, the police, everything's a Band-Aid uh, with the police. Yeah, and listen, I completely agree with all of that. Turning to what you're doing now, though, then, that's your background, and I did want to ask you about that. But how how is that going in your... So you're running... Could you perhaps actually, before we even get to that, start with just a little bit about your district? So it's the Washington's 5th Congressional District, if I got that right. You're running against a Republican incumbent, and Republicans have held the seat since the wave election of 94. So it's Republican, but not like insane 80-20 Republican. Did I get that right? That's all correct. Uh, we, we have a fascinating history in this district because this was a Democratic stronghold for, uh, based off of one person from 1964 to 1994. Foley, Tom. right? Yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. Yeah, I, I know. I, I love talking to people about Tom Foley. He was a speaker of the House from our district who lost his seat. Mm. Uh, interestingly, a lot of people in the district um, I get, were polled after his election, and uh, quite a few people were under the uh, misunderstanding that if you took uh, the seat of a, uh, of a House um, majority leader, that uh, the speaker of the House, that uh, whoever you replace them with would then become the Speaker of the House subsequently. <laughs> it's not true. And uh, that, that is it. So we actually have someone on our campaign. Uh, she's 88 years old, former chair of the of a local Democratic uh, Party group. And she worked on his first campaign. Hmm. Yes. And uh, and Sally, she um, you know, she she's she really shares a lot of that wisdom. How did he win this district and hold on to it for 30 years and what lost it? And none of our candidates in the last 25 years have brought back that uh, that mindset that really, you know, he was a man of the people. He was out there working with folks and meeting them on their level. And he won so many of our rural districts. He uh, he you know, went to every small town tavern and would talk to people and say, hi, I'm Tom Foley. I'm running for the U.S. House of Representatives. And that made a difference. He held on to those places because he became friends with the people in those areas. You could see him out at the grocery store. And for 25 years, every Democrat that's running this race has taken uh, corporate money. Uh, they they focused mainly on the main, mainly on the uh, two uh, population centers. Our district is 25 percent bigger than New Jersey. It's 10 counties. Uh, it takes about five to six hours to drive from the bottom of it to the top of it. It reaches from the Canadian border down to the Oregon border and uh, and alongside Idaho. Ten counties, but more than half our population is in one of them. Hmm. 
So it's a very economically diverse area. Uh, also, 5% of our population is Native American. Hmm. So we have a, a proportionally large Native American population compared to many other areas. But it is and, it is overall a pretty white district, though, right? It's like 80... I forget the figure I was looking it up. But 88. It's 88% white, okay. So it is... Although that's as of the last census, hmm. to be clear, too. I, I, the demographics have shifted considerably, but as of the, the 2010 census, it was at 88% white. So, but this is this is almost the definition of a theoretically winnable but very challenging seat for us. So, mostly white, big, spread out, lot of rural, um, one urban centre, but not enough that winning that would win you it. This is, this is, um, we're fighting on their turf here, to put it that way, right? Yeah, well, fortunately, my opponent is a complete absentee. She just doesn't show up. And after she won the last uh, 2018 midterm, she feels very secure in her seat. Um, so that's a strategic advantage for us. Because... So the idea being 2018 was a big wave year for us. So if she held it then, she probably figures she's safe now. That would be what you think they're thinking? Yes. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Exactly. Uh, we She had to dig deep. Devin Nunez and Paul Ryan had to come out here and fundraise for her. Mm. And in 2020, with how many uh, Republican senators are up for re-election and the presidency, I fully expect for her pockets not to be as deep. So if enough people decide that having one more vote in Congress uh, in favor of Medicare for all, tuition-free public universities and trade schools, the Green New Deal matters, this district is especially winnable in 2020. Because last time she had to push so hard to raise five and a half million, she will not be able to do that again. Without a doubt, the Republican pockets just won't be able to go as deep for her. You'll also presumably have a boost to, I mean, turnout was pretty high in 2018, but presumably 2020 with the presidential election on the ballot, you'll get even beyond that. And if we are polling as far ahead of Trump as we are now, I don't know that we will be, but if we are, that could that that could be enough to carry you over the line, right? Plus a strong I'm, campaign on the ground. Well, that's a, our. I That's exactly it. I think uh, even a weaker candidate would probably get within striking distance in the twenty twenty election, just because voter turnout could be so high. Especially if we have a strong enough presidential candidate for increasing um, for increasing voter turnout. Uh, but you know. What's going to carry us over the line is doing it differently than we've done it before. We've run candidates in the past who either didn't want to put in the ground game, uh, didn't want to put in the hours, or uh, just reeked of elitism. And we have to honestly look. I am a member of the Democratic Party. We have to look at our failings in the past if we're ever going to be able to move forward. And the fact is, someone who owns a ton of homes and has been in politics for 40 years is not going to be able to relate on the same level as someone who made minimum wage in the last few years, who chose to serve their country, who has struggled to put a roof over their head, even working multiple jobs, someone who's been without health care, been underinsured, someone whose family, uh, you know, are union members and people who've uh, also struggled where you get laid off. And now you have a, you know, with my, my family, I remember, you know, my dad got laid off when I was a uh, pretty young and um, he, 
all of a sudden, uh, you know, he had three kids and a wife and no health care and no source of income mm. and very little savings. That that wasn't much of a thing, just like it isn't now, because that's, that's part of why people are so sick of the establishment and ready to vote for outsiders and why we need to run working class outsider candidates is because uh, we know that pain and we know it intimately. And we don't know we don't want to go back to more of the same because more of the same has been hurting us for a long time. So let's separate out two things, one of which you could call the ground game, right? Putting in the hours, doing the canvas, doing the town hall, doing all of that. And, I mean, I've, I've never ran for office, but I've worked for quite a few politicians, and there's nothing... I'm not going to name any names, but I've been there. There's nothing worse than getting saddled with a lazy candidate. Because it's like, dude, I know you don't want to hear this, but running for office is really fucking hard work, and if you weren't game for that, you shouldn't You shouldn't have done it, you know? So there's that side of things. There's also, um, in the value-neutral sense of the term, the political ideology side of things. Because I think amongst the people I'm friends with... um certainly, and amongst the sort of left-wing online crowd, there's very much a feeling that, one, the Democratic Party has been failing because we've been perceived as elitist, we haven't been putting in the ground game, we haven't been failing, fielding good candidates, but two, that we've been espousing the wrong political ideology, that since what, around the time of Clinton, maybe even a bit before, the party's been captured by a vision of the world, which, while liberal in theory, is a liberalism that's very focused on markets, that's generally wary of big government interventions, that um, is slow, is incremental, that values bipartisanship and compromise and so on. And for all that we loved Obama, he was in many ways a continuation of that ideology. And I think there's a growing feeling that that's what's gone wrong, and if we become more aggressively left-wing and populist, that's the way to win. So I want to sort of pick apart that acclaim and um, maybe give some arguments for or against it, but do you, do you buy that as a framing narrative, not just on the getting out and meeting people, but on the ideology front? Yeah, I would say that, especially particular populism, you know, that's the message that really resonates. It's not about being too far left. It's about incrementalism has continued to push us incrementally into a more corporate state where people are being bled dry. The working class is being buried alive in debt that they're never going to be able to get out of. And they just we just are spending our entire lives paying off debt and suffering and in terror, in dread of getting sick, of working families having to say, if my kid breaks an arm, we might not be able to put food on the table if we need to get an x-ray. So absolutely, the incrementalism, the fear of you know intervention, in my eyes, has been an excuse. If you're doing very well financially, you don't want the system to change unless it's going to change to make you more money. Hmm. And that is the elitism that ties directly into it because there is a growing and growing proportion of the country that is massively dissatisfied with how things are. So if it's further left, 
fine. I guess that's where it is. But it's just a fact that just like so many other countries on Earth, we need good health care. We need good jobs. If it takes the government stepping in, it seems to be working other places. So why not? I sometimes feel, well, not I sometimes feel I've written bloody academic papers on this, um, <laughs> that thinking about political ideology as a line or perhaps like a graph um, is often the wrong way to go. And just thinking about it as like, am I more left wing or right wing than X sometimes isn't particularly useful. And you want to describe in a more complete sense what the underlying values of a particular belief system are so can we pick that apart a bit you use the I word want to share an anecdote about that <laughs> what's up oh i want to share a story oh, about yeah, exactly please. that please so i was at a city council meeting here a few weeks ago and a lot of people look at our at the spokane city of spokane city council and say these are the conservatives and these are these are the Democrats and these are Republicans, even though it's a nonpartisan race. And they, they group them into those categories. <laughs> but the truth is we have one true progressive, if you want to use that term, one person who refuses corporate money, who continues to stand up for the people. And, uh, you know, over corporations. And she is the one dissenting vote so often or the one affirmative vote so often, even though they group her with other candidates and, and you know, based on arbitrary things. And um, so a gentleman is a little bit famous around here. He uh, for for his appearances at city council meetings, he um, has a big bushy white beard and a giant walking stick mm. he carries around and a MAGA hat that he wears. And he walked into the city council and he said, I am so damn tired of you giving all my tax dollars to these businesses out here downtown. The sidewalk in front of the places looks terrible. They're just building new lobbies. And one person on that city council, one person agreed with him and was excited and was like, heck yes, I completely agree. And then all the other city council members talked about, went on little rants about how important the subsidies to corporations are down here. But the MAGA gentlemen and the true blue progressive were entirely united on that. So absolutely, I find more common ground as a progressive with conservatives and libertarians and socialists and every other 99% of the pop group within the 99% of the population than a corporate Democrat does with those groups. Corporate Democrat, establishment Democrat is closer, is, is farther from what will win those votes. And that's why Bernie said, I mean, it, it, actually a study was done that found that Fox News viewers are more likely to support Bernie Sanders than uh, MSNBC viewers. But in terms of efficacy, though, like, I mean, I agree with, I haven't read all of the platform, but like 99, let's just assume 100% of um, what Bernie's running on this time. That claim is separate from the claim that that will necessarily be the best platform to stand on. And there seems to be a belief that I'm a little bit sceptical of which I took you to be saying, because it just sounds too good to be true, that basically Democrats have been getting our asses handed to us for a while now. I mean, I know we had the presidency under Obama, but uh, we got eviscerated on the state and local level. 
for those eight years. Um, Trump obviously won in 2016. And the belief is we need to, like you say, let's not put it in terms of left-wing and right-wing, but we need to take a more vocally anti-corporate, anti-establishment message, and that will have the result of putting us further on the left. If so, so be it. Um, well, and just to clarify, it's not anti-corporate, it's pro-people. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. Sure. I mean, here's my skepticism. Firstly, every bit... I'm going to revert back to the sort of um, line-on-a-graph measure of ideology, just because it's what people tend to use in social science. Every bit of social science data I've seen says that being a quote-unquote, and I'm putting big scare quotes around this word, but a quote-unquote more moderate or more centrist candidate does tend to correlate with a stronger performance in congressional elections. Now, the effect isn't huge. It's only like two to four percentage points. Um, and... You know, a strong campaign can overrun that. But I just sort of think about that when I hear this narrative of we just need... It turns out, in order to win, we just need to run on the things that we happened to believe in anyway. It seems a bit like confirmation bias to me, and it seems a bit too good to be true. I'll put off pause there. Yeah, let me bring up a point, too. You know, uh, so our candidate in 2018... Um, her name was Lisa Brown. She ran a good race. She ran the establishment playbook as well as it can be run. Um, and she really forced the Republicans to spend a lot from their war chest and it helped down ballot candidates. Um, she also pivoted on the issues based on polling and, you know, the standard politician thing, the advice you're given. Uh, she wouldn't take hardline stances on the issues. Her, their nickname for her, the Republicans, was Liberal Lisa. And they ran all these ads about what an intense liberal she was. Went to, you know, progressives and people on the left. We were in Democrats who were like, why don't you just say you want universal health care? All these different things. So we were frustrated with her as well. And that's why our voter turnout wasn't anywhere where we needed it to be, because our our base wasn't galvanized. Hmm. It, that establishment mindset just has the expectation that your base is just going to turn out. And that's part of what has hurt Democrats for so long is the idea that you can just expect certain blocks to vote for you. Hmm. Ain't going to happen. So they're going to call us these things anyway. There's, as, you know, They're going to call us socialists. They're going to call us liberal. But most voters aren't voting based on issues. They're voting based on their sense of your character. Hmm. And, you know, that's a, this is going to be a hard race. You know, Beto O'Rourke was a good example. His Senate run um, really inspired me. And uh, same for um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez in another way. Uh, but the idea that if you get to people's level, especially when they have an absentee representative and you speak to enough people and you show them your character, that will win it over. That will win people over. So, you know, there there might be data out there that says that, um, you know, centrists perform better by two to four points. Uh, but I would argue, especially looking at, at Beto O'Rourke's Senate run, that um, people are going to respond more to their sense that you're being honest with them and straightforward, especially low information and undecided voters and voters who feel like they're ignored and like their politicians are just going to politic. Hmm. 
And and I I constantly meet people who are so excited to work on this campaign. We every time we table at a local college, <coughs> we sign up another 15, 20, 25 volunteers. Mm. We this campaign has no problem getting volunteers. And it's because people say, "Oh, wow, you're incredible because you're you're one of us. You're just you're not doing the politician thing and that's amazing." And it's sad that that's where we've gotten to in our political uh discourse where the most admirable people in politics just exhibit the same traits working class people do, that we're just honest and straightforward and not dancing around or focus grouping every issue or every stance. I mean, though, there is a counterpoint, which is if you look at 2018, it was a really strong year for us. And, you know, there's the data, right, which can seem a bit abstract. And the data also doesn't tell you about causality. You know, if, if moderates slightly outperform, well, is that because they have more money? Is it because the moderate stances are more popular? Is it because, you know, th there's a variety of things that could be going into that. Here's my scepticism, and this is coming from someone who wants this narrative to be true. I want it to be the case that we need to just be authentic and stand up for what we believe, right? Here's my scepticism. Is I look at 2018, which was a very, very good year for us, and it seems to me that the people we were most excited about, and by we I mean people who are strongly progressive and spend too much time reading politics online, the people we were excited by were the exceptions in that they lost, in that a lot of my friends were very excited by um, Gilliam in Florida. Um, a lot of people were very excited by Stacey Abrams, and I know she's running in a hell of a state. Um, Ocasio-Cortez won, but she won in a district that's something like 80-20. Democrat, um, Beto O'Rourke inspired a lot of people and lost to Ted Cruz. And the people who won are the people who didn't excite the progressive base. Um, Doug Jones um, doesn't have this sort of, like, Bernie-like following, but took Alabama for us. Um, um, Joe Manchin is reviled and hated by the left for a variety of legitimate reasons, but keeps winning in West Virginia. Um, you, you, you could go down the list. It, it, it does seem like there is, in 2018 alone, a bit of a mismatch between who we've said, these are the people who are going to bring in the volunteers and the grassroots energy, and what the actual outcomes were. I'll pause there. Yeah, and that's a fair point. I mean, I would also argue, looking at Gillum's election and Abrams, those two in particular, both of those states are pra are plagued by massive voter fraud. Yeah. Uh, you know, the 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 expunging hundreds of thousands of people from voter rolls, having people in the election whose job it is to provide oversight for the election. So. I'll just say what it is. Both of them got cheated out of their races. They both really won. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And I think you and me and anyone else looking honestly at the situation knows that. Beto O'Rourke's a tougher one. But across the country, people like Richard Ojeda and Beto O'Rourke swung races 20 points. They may not have squeaked out that victory for whatever reason, but a lot of those races were stolen from them. And they had the courage to run in those areas and probably engage. They, the number of voters they engaged got involved in the process is crucial to consider. Uh, we, these, you know, red area after red area has low voter turnout. 
And the Tea Party didn't take over the Republican Party by winning every race. Hmm. They won by saying, we care about this and we're going to fight for it, even if you have an R next to your name. And I, I see it as the same, the same strategy, you know, the same insurgent kind of mindset of we are going to fight for what we believe in every single place we can. Hmm. And we're going to fight to win. And that attitude, that's to stand idly by while while evil occurs is to approve of it. Hmm. And I'm yeah, go ahead. Um, that does bring me on to another concern I have with this narrative, and you haven't said it, but there is a sort of eye-rolling, they're both the same that can happen. Whereas actually what's so wrong with our democracy right now is that one side of the political spectrum, at least on the national level, let's say, um, there's some probably Republicans at the local level who are not how I'm describing them. But at the national level, the Republican Party has become radicalized, and as the voter suppression efforts that you talked about show, they don't view us as legitimate co-partners in, in a democracy. And as President Trump's requests for Ukraine to interfere with the election, and the entire Congressional Republican Party's complicity in that, and covering up for it and protecting it, and defending it has shown, there really isn't much they won't do in order to gain and maintain power. And people look at what's happening in Washington, and they think, well, both parties are taking corporate money, both of them are promising all of these great things and not delivering it, you know, a curse on both their houses, right? And I think... For all of the failings of the democratic establishment, of which there are many, and whose frustration with them I share, it seems so unfair to say they're the problem. The problem is that half of our political spectrum is insane, and that the nature of the American Constitution means if they have access to a single part of our federal government, be it the Senate, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, the, the House, whatever, they just need one, and they can hold all of the rest of it up. And, you know, you can look at the Obama presidency or um, anything and say, you know, the centrists were weak, they weren't radical enough, they should have stood up for their ideas, and I agree. But the reason they didn't get it done was because half of our political spectrum is insane and is implacably set against any form of social progress, even something very mild like Obamacare. And there is part of this attack that the real problem is just the sort of establishment politicians of either party that doesn't do justice to the reality of just how deranged the Republican Party has become. That was a bit long, so I'll put that back to you. Well, I think that, um, <clears throat> I don't think the Democratic Party was quite so helpless. I think that the Democratic establishment has been attached to the system more than the results. Hmm. I, you know, there is there is a lot of talk that Barack Obama could have just appointed someone to the Supreme Court when the Senate refused to confirm their the person they really wanted, Merrick Garland. Hmm. There is a lot of talk among legitimate scholars that he could have just appointed someone. And you know what I believe he should have done? I hope it doesn't sound hubristic to say, you know, what I think he should have done. But 
Um, I think that he should have grabbed the absolute most extreme progressive he could have and said, fine, you're not going to co confirm the person you mentioned as being a reasonable pick. We're going to put someone just directly into the Supreme Court because you're refusing to do your constitutionally assigned duty. Mm. And there are constitutional scholars who say that that would have been allowed. Uh, you know, and a president who was willing to use the bully pulpit and get out there and go to even Democrats' districts, because Democrats are the reason we didn't have public option in, in Obama's first term, yes. not Republicans. Democrats held the House and the Senate for his first two years, and they could not pass public option. So I hold them just as accountable. So while one party might be able to grab one branch and, and kick and stomp their feet, I believe that the Democratic establishment has refused to stray from this commitment to norms that yeah. aren't even codified. Yeah. yeah. So like, like why can't we get rid of the bloody filibuster? Like, that is just the mildest thing in the world. And yet we, we put that straitjacket on ourselves with the Obamacare passage. Um, and I just interviewed Sherrod Brown, who um, is against the filibuster. And he said, he said, if we'd have just been willing to get rid of the filibuster, you could have had a public option. Or at the very least, you could have had a much more aggressive Medicare expansion and buy-in. Um, no, no, I mean, I, I completely agree. Why, why that should override passing this thing we've been trying for 30 years to pass, I have no idea. How about a real filibuster? I'll stand up there for 20 hours. Let's see if Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham Yeah, I want to see Miss M Mitch McConnell piss himself on the Senate floor. Like, enough of this <laughs> procedural filibuster, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, so I talk to a lot of people and something that really resonates um, with people out here, it's actually part of what lost Tom Foley his seat mm. is his opponent talked about term limits mm. a lot. Our incumbent right now has been there for eight terms, but that resonates with people throughout the history of this district. Uh, and like I said, just in my lifetime, this was one of the most reliably blue districts in the country, enough so that they appointed a speaker of the house from here. Uh, we've just run not great candidates. Uh, but, you know, the idea that we need a changing of the guard, and most of the people running this country have been running it since my grandparents were my age. Yeah, and we can get onto the 2020 race and the concern frequently raised there about how, you know, regardless of where you stand in that, how old that field is. I want to just go back to th this previous point, though. Like, it is certainly true that, as you say, the attachment to norms within the Democratic Party establishment is, it's not just holding us back, it's, it's, I sort of don't get it at some level. I'm not, I, I'm not sure why anybody would believe that. I also think there's just sort of a case that they think they know what they're doing, and they think they're the ones who know how to win elections and get stuff done. And I think they don't realise how badly that authority has been undercut by losing to Trump. I don't think they realise how discredited their claims to procedural knowledge have become. So I think that's all true, and I think more certainly could have been achieved in the Obama years, and it was a sort of ideology of compromise and consensus and commitment to norms that got in the way. I think that that is all true. At the same time, I don't, I don't put being naive if we can call it that, on the same moral playing field as being malicious. I do still 
reserve more moral condemnation for the Republicans. That's sort of a nuanced view, but I think that is my view. I think most people who spend decades in the political system start to lose the forest through the trees, and they're well-intentioned, but they do. And I, you know, I've just, especially over the course of this election, I've spoken to people who've known previous uh, Democrats running out here before for decades. And, you know, a story I've heard is, you know, oh, 30 years ago, they were a broke PhD student and, you know, on the picket lines. And then they got into politics. And after, you know, serving in this legislature or that, you know, council position for 20, 30 years, um, they became everything that they despised when they were young. I, I think that very few people are equipped to not, um, you know, lose uh, lose their grip on 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 what real people are facing, and and just you know, so many of them just become a, a, you know focused on politics. I and mean, that's something I talk about with the volunteers on the campaign is that um, there's so much you know, little politicking that goes on, you know, this person, the party said this to that person and and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just say, let's, let's focus outward. Let's, let's not work, look at the internal politic mechanisms and the people trying to set themselves as gatekeepers. And let's look at the voters because they're the constitutionally appointed gatekeepers Hmm. to holding office. And so, you know, their, their focus is, like I said, it's just, it's um, it's them, you know, focusing so much on these institutions and norms that they've been a part of for so long that they forget that their job is to help people. I mean, just as a quick aside, I'm of the view that we now have a contradiction between our political culture and our political institutions in that we've become a very sort of two teams partisan political culture with political institutions that are designed for compromise and consensus. Um, And one of them has to break. Either we have to change our political culture or we have to change our political institutions. And my view is change the institutions. Like, let's make it so that if you have a national majority, you can legislate without all these sort of rings and hoops and circuses, you know? More like a parliamentary system? Exactly, yes. (laughs) Um, I felt like you might be hinting at that earlier when you were talking about some of the um, organizational flaws within our system. I mean, the, the truth is, though, that we have a parliamentary culture, right? And, you know, you can bemoan partisanship, but actually, you know, coming from the UK, right, a parliamentary culture in and of itself isn't a bad thing. I mean, the UK, well, actually, the UK's now gone the other way. We've, we, we, we're evolving into more of a sort of congressional culture with this Brexit thing, but that's a whole other story. Um, but having a two-teams politics in which your political expression is closely tethered to your democrat- de- demographic identity... Um, which is attitudes towards class in the UK and attitudes towards race in the US. That's not a bad thing. But the thing is with two teams is you have to have decisive victories. That's what makes it work. Um, And the US system is, is set up to avoid that. Um, and it's just a contradiction. And it's we, we, so, um, to my mind, it's like if we have a parliamentary political culture, which I think we do, we can bemoan that. Or we can start to change our institutions to better reflect the reality of how Americans are actually thinking about politics. That's a whole other thing, but that is my view. 
That's fair. I actually addressed some of these um, institutional problems in a, a bill that I'm proposing, and, and in the next few weeks should be uh, releasing information on other people running for the U.S. House who are willing to co-sponsor this bill once we are elected. Hmm. And it's called the Marketplace of Ideas Act. And I was very purposeful in giving that, that name, uh, but it uh, it guarantees ballot access for third and fourth party candidates for all federal seats and puts an absolute cap on the most money that can be fundraised by federal candidates. Um, and until we can overturn Citizens United, which is going to be very challenging, mm. um, you know, we're it's, it's you know, we're going to need either a constitutional convention or an amendment or a more progressive Supreme Court. Um, you know, it's at least something uh, to, to stop the problem. But I think until, you know, so much of our system being messed up, it isn't about uh, just that there's two parties. It's also that corporate influence makes honest discussion impossible. Yeah. I think there's a thing where, look, listen, you can hate on the two-party system all you want, um, but when I look around the world, I don't necessarily see the you know, two parties necessarily produce bad outcomes and multi-party systems create great outcomes. Multi-party systems have their strengths. They also have their weaknesses. Look at Italy, say, right? Um, the, the, the problem is... The problem is the structures are wrong, right? Like the influence of money in our politics, Citizens United. Um, you could have a two-party system that, you know would deliver much better outcomes than our current one is if you didn't have um, essentially, what could you call it, this oligarchic capture of our democratic processes? Yeah. Well, I think ranked choice voting and uh, in areas where it's applicable, proportional representation, uh, proportional representation is something I don't hear people talk about a lot here, um, but I would love to see that thrown into the American experiment at levels where it's acceptable, and then also um, ranked choice voting nationally as part of the Marketplace of Ideas Act. Because I think one of the brilliant pieces of uh, being a democratic republic is the idea is that you're putting the keys to power in as many hands as possible. So those oligarchic influencers and um, you know corporate influencers, it's, it's, there's too many people <laughs> for them to buy all of them. And the field is too diverse. That's part of what I love about the Democratic field right now uh, for the presidency, is it's a big field. Mm. So it really forces, um, you know, those bad actors that get involved, those corrupt actors, to, uh, <laughs> you know, spread themselves more thin, and that decreases their influence. Yeah, I mean, certainly I would like... Well, I mean, you're running for the House, right? I would... Yeah. I, I, it seems very unfair to me that Democrats would have to win the national popular vote, do have to win the national popular vote by, what, about five to six points in order to merely break even in the House. That There doesn't seem to be a justifiable reason for that to me. So for whatever the fix needs to be to change that you know you could have rival constitutional schemes or whatever but that seems not and, and never mind the bloody senate and how that's <laughs> that's elected um the final thing i did want to touch on though is um when we talk one final so i should say i'm giving you my concerns and skepticisms with a progressive approach to politics which like like i say 
I largely agree with, and I would like you to fully refute my my scepticisms and reassure me <laughs> on these. Um, but the final scepticism I have, and I'm not saying you, you're running for office, and I'm not saying the national leaders even, but when I look at a lot of the people who are strong progressives, who are um, well, let's just take the candidate we've been t- we've been sort of mentioning all interviews. Our strong Bernie supporters is I see an unease and a skepticism and a discomfort with directly engaging politically. Um, so I had in 2016 a lot, like more than a dozen of my friends um, uh, supported Bernie in the primary and then wouldn't vote in the general or voted for Jill Stein or something like that because they just felt there wasn't... They, they, they felt Hillary Clinton or whatever, they had a story that they told themselves, which I felt was just a strategic error. And then even now in this race, I'm seeing a lot of people saying very similar things, and that makes me uneasy. It's like, yeah, campaign for the primary candidate you want. I have spent a lot of my life trying to get uh, progressives elected in democratic primaries at all sorts of levels. But... A sort of ideal that we won't make lesser of evil's choices, and that we view the system itself as a problem, as opposed to trying to fight to get representation within the system, makes me very, very uneasy with that movement. I'll pause there. Mm. So, I I don't think, you know, even if... Uh... I mean, I'll just say, you know, Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg are probably the two people that Bernie supporters are the most concerned about. Um, I just don't foresee any world where after we have years of looking at how horrific Donald Trump, um, Donald Trump's presidency has been, that one, a lot of people who who decided not to vote in 2016, who wanted to vote for Bernie, Mm. um, you know, I think a lot of those people, if they could rewind the clock, would just vote for Hillary. Mm. Um, also, you know, she was given advice by the Sanders campaign to go out to key swing states, and she opted not to. That was strategic advice she ignored that probably would have won her those 70,000 key votes that got Donald Trump the electoral votes. Um, you know, she still won the popular vote by 3 million. And even beyond that, Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, on their absolute most gaff-prone day, are, are an order of magnitude more popular than Hillary Clinton. She was a historically unpopular candidate. I just don't foresee any circumstance where, um, even with that same rhetoric rolling around about, you know, um, if it's not our candidate, then we're not going to vote, that enough of the electorate won't take this seriously. Also, it's an organizational thing. You know, there was so much anger in 2016 that I felt and was a part of many people feeling Mm. that Bernie Sanders had been unfairly treated. That just can't happen in the current field. No matter who wins, it's tough to look at it honestly and say that that person didn't actually win. Everybody's out there organizing and campaigning. So again, what I love about the diverse field is everybody knows it's it's tougher, but the standards are more fair. You know, the Democratic Party decreased the power of superdelegates. And with these debates, I, I really love that they're trying something new. You need to do that. Sometimes you need to shoot. See where you're, where you're, you know, where it lands, and then re-aim, and they're doing it, and I think that's fantastic. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think that we're much more cohesive than we were a few years ago. 
I think we are better than we were in 2016. But look, a couple of points. Firstly, saying that there are elements, minority elements, within the sort of Sanders movement. And I, I want to be clear, minority elements within the Sanders movement that make me uneasy is not to offer a defense of Hillary Clinton, right? There are a lot of things Hillary Clinton could have done to win that election. And there's a lot of things that happened that were neither to do with Sanders or Clinton, such as the James Comey letter that probably had a decisive... I mean, it was so close in those key states that there's, I think there's like half a dozen things that could have swung it, like Hillary Clinton not campaigning hard in those states is one of them, the Comey letter is another, um, but the Bernie or Bust movement is another, and um, yes, you're right, a lot of it came from this sense that Bernie had been cheated out of the election, which I think was overblown. I think... Look, did the DNC prefer Hillary? Obviously. But was it rigged? Were they fraudulently messing with voting machines? Were they doing stuff like happened to uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, where they disqualified voters? No, no. Hillary won by three million, four million more votes than Sanders. She got more delegates. She won it the same way Obama won it, by or any Democratic candidate ever has won it, which is a combination of elite and popular support. Um, so I think this feeling that Bernie had it stolen, which did lead to absenteeism, which was one of five or six things that cost Hillary the election, it, it was exaggerated. And I think people just needed to calm down, take a deep breath, and take a step back. And uh, they really refused to do so. And I'm, you can hear it, like, I'm still, like, that's why personally I'm for Warren, is like, if I can have a progressive who doesn't have that weirdness and that baggage, why wouldn't I go for that? Does that make sense? Yeah, well, let me let me bring up another point on that, too, though. Uh, you know, one of the things we say on this campaign is earn the votes. And, you know, I met with uh, the Labor Council out here just last night, and they were, they were, um, <laughs> I mean, they said, you know, you're a 27-year-old who hasn't held uh, a seat in government before. And, um, you know, when I finished giving my little speech to everybody, I said, I, you don't owe me your support. I know that. Nobody owes me their support. My job is to continue to show you to continue to show you every single day that I'm the person you should back. And if I believe it, you know, there's someone named uh, Jocko Willink. He actually appears on Fox News a lot, uh, but he's a former Navy SEAL. He has a podcast that I uh, enjoy, and I read his book Extreme Ownership, which I really enjoyed. And um, it was a really uh, influential book for me when I was in the military mm. uh, as far as leadership. A leader takes responsibility for everything. And so my opinion on Hillary Clinton's role in all of that is that as a leader, she should have earned those Sanders voters. She should have convinced them that she was the person to back. Maybe she should have made him his VP. He even said, why don't you take on some of my policies? So that way it'll be easier for people to support you. There are so many things in, in, that is her choice. She, as a leader, every, as a leader of an organization, as the candidate, it's on me. 
When a mistake gets made, even if I had nothing to do with it, if a strategic failure happens, that's on me. That's on my back. I carry that weight. I take responsibility for that. So those voters who weren't convinced that they should vote for Hillary Clinton, that's their right. And it's her job to convince them otherwise. And that's ownership and that's leadership. Well, it's their right can be a misleading... Um, well, well, so first of all, as the candidate, primary responsibility has to fall on Hillary, right? Like, um, but both things can be true at once. Like, the primary responsibility falls on her. At the same time, um, yes, it is. It, I mean, you can say it's someone's right. You have the right to free speech and you have the right to say and do all sorts of things that aren't good or advisable. Yes, it's people's right as a matter of law and the functioning of our democracy to abstain or to cast a ballot for Trump if that's how they feel it's their right. It doesn't mean it's a sensible or justified use of that right. Um, and, yeah, that that I hope you're right. I hope we don't see it again this time, but it, 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 there's a deeper problem here, because look, we can re-litigate re, re 2016, right? And I'm happy to, more than happy to say that the, well, not even happy to say, like, I'm conceding the point, this is what I think, the primary responsibility lies on Hillary Clinton. It is also the case that if Sanders to Jill Stein voters, or Sanders to absentee voters, or even Sanders to Trump voters, had not done that in those key states. The, that, those numbers of votes would have been more than enough to avoid the Trump presidency. That's a fact about the world, and it's a fact about the world that makes me uncomfortable when I see people getting ready to do it again. And I don't think Hillary has ever really properly reconciled herself with her responsibility for losing that election. I also don't think Sanders and the Sanders movement, perhaps separate from the candidate, has ever really reconciled itself with the contributing role it played in losing that election. And I get it, it's all really hard, and a big part of 2016 is all of us have a lot of I-got-that-wrongs to say. And I don't know, I just still feel uneasy with that movement because it hasn't reconciled itself with it in that way. Well, that's fair. And I, I do think the one factor that is the most, um, the most relevant with, to kind of assuage that concern is that if, for right reasons or wrong reasons, Hillary Clinton might have been the most unpopular person to run for the presidency in U.S. history with a long record that you can attack mm. and a lot of her qualifications, too. Um, but uh, I, I don't think anyone in the field right now, Democrats, has the baggage that she had. Biden, maybe. I mean, this is the thing. If Biden wins, which he's looking like he's going to, I am not looking forward to spending a year trying to tell my progressive friends, just hold your nose and vote for it. I would much rather um, Warren, or even Sanders, actually, I would much rather spend my time telling my centrist friends, this is not scary. This is going to be good for you. These are good ideas. You know what I mean? That, that's just personally where I'd much rather be. Yeah, well, that's fair. But, you know, I can speak on a more personal level. Like I said, I've been doing 
stand-up for a few years now. And one of the questions I always ask myself is, um, you know, if I do I find it funny? Because then other people will probably find it funny. And I think that there's some crossover here. In 2016, I was very upset about how the primaries went and the nomination process. This time, if you know what, if Joe Biden is running, uh, is, is the candidate, I'll go vote for him. Heck yeah. Because we have kids in cages. I yeah. did not think things would degrade to the point that they have. And some people did. Some people predicted it. I just wasn't one of them. I knew Donald Trump was terrible. I knew that he was a jack wagon. But I did not think that the level of human rights abuses that we have seen would have happened. Not even close. And I know Joe Biden or anyone else on that stage, any one of them, no matter how corporate, won't do that. And beyond that, um, you know, something I really stress to people now is, do you think the most conservative person on that Democratic debate stage, whether it be Klobuchar or Biden or Buttigieg, do you think that if Congress passed a single-payer Medicare for All bill, if it made it all the way through Congress, that a Democratic president would veto it? Mm. No, I don't believe that. I do not believe that they would veto it. No. And, and that's why Congress matters. And in a sense, you know, you know, they're, they're all going to sort of go through the same, they're going to appoint people who actually do the stuff for them. I would rather not have Joe Biden as president because he's a compromiser. His central political identity is about working with the other side. And I just think that's not what we need right now. But, like, there's... There's no nice way to say this, because it is going to come off as a sort of, I told you so, and that's not how I mean it. I was one of those people in 2016 who was saying Trump can win, and it will really be this bad. I guess my moment of, like, I got it wrong is I didn't... I didn't realise how badly Hillary would fuck it up. When she won the nomination, I was like, okay, guys, this is fine. Let's move on. She's, she's the same... What I argued at the time is she's more or less the same policy platform as Obama. It's not what we'd love, but it's what we can live with. I didn't... I didn't get how unpopular she'd make herself, which some of it is sexism. Some of it is Republican conspiracy theories, but some of it was also her, and she could have done things better. That's sort of my I got it wrong. I think the Sanders people, like you said, just didn't didn't see obviously what a disaster a Trump presidency could be. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I... I'm I'm optimistic. I, I get the sense maybe you're you're a lot more concerned um, about how this is all going to shake up. But you know, I think especially our campaign is a campaign of optimism, mm. and I think that every single day I meet people uh, and talk to people across the country who are fighting to make things better and weren't doing that in 2015 and 2016. They got involved after they saw how things went. I think there's organizations like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats and so many different groups that are ready to fight and have been building infrastructure for three years. So. I, and I think this time the spirit of insurgency will be with us, because however incorrect I think this decision is, I think a lot of people, you know, hate... I mean, look... 
the, the levels of trust and approval in our democracy are pretty low right now. And a lot of people thought, you know, let's get this Trump bull in a china shop, shake things up. It was the wrong decision. But that sort of screw the system is going to be on our side this time. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. You know, and Republicans have been playing, um, have been playing victim. They're really good at it. Hmm. They're really good at playing the victim in the political system. And uh, we need to step up on every single front. All the seats that we lost, you know, under the Obama administration, all the seats that go unchallenged today, uh, it's a problem. And, and we're fighting back against it and looking at the institutions and how to change them. You know, when I go to the Spokane County Democrats executive board meetings, half the people have been there since the 70s. The other half came around after 2016. And that was because of Bernie Sanders. I haven't met anyone involved in politics who said I got involved because Hillary Clinton inspired me so much. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. And look, look, for all my criticisms of Sanders, two things can be set true at the same time. I think there was too much tolerance of sort of Bernie or busting. There was a compl- there was um, a complacency. I'll put it that way in 2016, and I hope there isn't in 2020. That's true. I think. I think it's also true that he has moved the party to the left, There's, and he has energised and brought in a load of people, and I think both of those things can be true at the same time. I think people don't reduce to either, even people we, you know, I think people don't reduce to either just purely good or purely bad, and I don't think the sort of strongly progressive noises that we are hearing um, from AOC or from Warren or from Bernie running again and we, we we wouldn't be here without that primary challenge in 2016. So I think both are true, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. Sometimes you need to go through uh, those challenging periods, and it's tough because so many people are suffering, um, but I do believe we will come out of all this stronger. I do. From your lips to God's ears, we've run over time, so let's wrap up. Um, people listening to this who would like to... Um, support your campaign if they'd like to donate to you or uh, volunteer or anything like that? Where should they go? Go to armitageforcongress.com. That's A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E for congress.com. Uh, or Act Blue is a really good one if you just search Chris Armitage. Uh, and, you know, we have sign-up volunteer forms on the website and the donations. And uh, we're, we're really looking. I'm not sure what your listenership is like, uh, but our goal is to get 100 more recurring monthly donors in the next week <laughs> of even a dollar. Mm. And so I really encourage people to consider being one of those 100 because, you know, more than this race is winnable. Mm. We need a strong Congress, regardless of who the president is. Like I said, with President Obama, you know, if if we uh, the Democrats in Congress were the ones who stopped public option. So we need to cast the net wide and win every seat we can get, because uh, it's not just, you know, with it's not just Democrat versus Republican. I need to be able to align with other Democrats across the country who are ready for single payer Medicare for all. Mm. Um, and, you know, that, that's going to be important. So I, I really appreciate uh, you having me on. It means a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I encourage people to check that out. And um, what I can do for you is if you 
I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes. So um, everyone listening to this, even if it's on like iTunes or whatever, if you check the episode description, there'll be that link there. Um, how are you feeling about this? The, the conventional wisdom seems to be that Trump is beatable, but not guaranteed to be beaten, that will retain the House and probably not the Senate. Do you think, or, or are you more optimistic than that? <laughs> I'm more optimistic. I am. Uh, I mean, we got to get out there. We got to work hard. But I believe the Senate's going to be tough. But uh, I think we can do it. We have some strong candidates around the country. We have infrastructure that's never existed in this country mm. before, especially down ballot. We have people running at every single level of government. And that is a factor that will drain resources from Republicans. We need to, we're fighting on more fronts than ever before. We have more people engaged than ever before. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really impressed with the field of Democrats. Uh, I will say not to, you know, push him too much, but Bernie Sanders is the first presidential candidate to get 4 million individual donors. And he did it a year before no, the general. Uh, for all my winching about Bernie, his fundraising yeah. prowess is off the hook. There's no, no reasonable yeah. person could dispute that. And that inspires me, though, because that to me and, you know, Warren as well, uh, I believe she reached over a million donors and um, these campaigns have millions of volunteers. These rallies have more people than ever showing up. It's not just one person like I, I'm really inspired right now. And I believe, especially with a strong enough candidate, and this is going to sound crazy. You can think it's crazy if you want. I think we could have um, a candidate win by 10 million votes against uh, Donald Trump. In the in the midterms, we had 18 million more votes for Democrats than Republicans. Well, this is 18 what, million. This is one of the things I've been saying in that people don't get me wrong, Trump can win. We can fuck this up. But if we nearly get out the people we got out to vote in the midterms, we win, right? Like it's um the the, the votes to defeat Trump are already there, right? We just need to like not fuck it up, which is why I am worried about dividing the party and on both sides of that equation, actually. Um, and I would strongly prefer a progressive. But we, the votes are there, and we're 10 points ahead in the polls. I think, I think Democrats are getting spooked by 2016, and they're thinking, oh, he's certain to win because of the economy or something. No, 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 this is... We already have the army, just lead them into battle, you know? I like that expression. I might steal that. <laughs> we have the army. We just got to lead them into battle. That is good. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. In this week's episode, we started by talking about some of the problems with the criminal justice system in America, particularly over-incarceration, and the relationship of that to drug laws. In next week's episode, we're going to look at the history of how that came about. I'll be interviewing historian David Farber, who's written a fascinating book on the social and political history of the crack epidemic. Both where that epidemic came from, but also how society and our political system responded to it, including its role in funneling into the prison industrial complex. It was a really fascinating book and a really fascinating conversation from which I learnt a lot. So that'll be coming out next week. I have more interviews set up and in the bank, so it looks like 
that'll be interviews for the foreseeable future. I was thinking of doing some sort of, like, end-of-year special. Maybe something just a bit different, a bit out there, take our minds off the somewhat bleak state of affairs politically currently. Haven't quite decided what yet, but I might do something for the Christmas week that's a solo episode or something. Shoot me ideas on social media or email if anything comes to mind for that. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, please do share this episode on your own social media. I'm incredibly grateful for all of the growth that we've had on this podcast, and that's all just through people hitting that share button. If you can support the podcast in a more monetary way, we do have the Patreon page, and I'll put that in the show notes along with the links to support Chris. But this podcast goes out for free and advertisement-free, so if you'd like to help support that, anything you can chip in is much appreciated. Apart from that, I hope to see you next week. Well, as I always point out when I make this mistake, I will not see you, nor will you see me, because it's an audio recording. But I hope you'll join us next week for David Farber on The Crack Epidemic. Thanks again for listening.